This is the Big Shift for Small Farms podcast. G'day listeners, Edgar's here along with my co-host, environmental educator Katie Meyer. G'day Katie. Hey there, Edgar's. I've got a question. What do landowners and wildlife have in common? Oh, probably many things. What do they have in common? They both benefit from wildlife corridors. Now, Stay with me. For animals, it's about connecting wildlife habitats because they move daily and seasonally to survive. But also for landowners, there are benefits too, from personal well-being to even agricultural productivity. Yeah, I can totally see that. But unfortunately, the habitats that the animals rely on, they still continue to be fragmented by housing, roads, fences, farms, and other man-made barriers. So as a result, animals, they're still struggling to reach food, water, shelter, and even their breeding sites. But there are things that you as a landowner can do to help reduce fragmentation, to create and improve habitat connectivity. For example, something just as simple as planting more trees and creating corridors and overall wildlife conservation can really also contribute to landscape resilience, which benefits landowners in many ways like preventing soil erosion, improving crop pollination, and providing shelter for stock. Now, Katie, you spoke with a few people who are working in this area. Tell us a little bit more about what we're going to hear today. Yes. So I had the honor of speaking with some very inspiring individuals who have been working in this space. Let's kick it off with Angie, who is the Senior Land Services Officer with Greater Sydney Local Land Services. So Angie works mostly in the Hawkesbury and the Greater Blue Mountains World Heritage Area. And she's been working on natural resource management projects with landholders that live in that area. She shares with us the importance of habitat connectivity. Improving habitat connectivity matters, obviously, to the animals that are using the corridor by aiding their movement to find food, to find mates and to breed and to find new territories, which ensures genetic diversity and creates healthy populations, but also in the changing climate, habitat connectivity will become even more important for species to be able to move across the landscape in search of more suitable habitats. Native vegetation also minimises erosion, especially on slopes and along watercourses, slowing the flow of water. This is especially important in times of flood, which we've witnessed much more often over the, the recent years. We've had three or four major floods in a row. Vegetation also cleans and filters water running through our properties and into our dams, for example, for stock watering. Native vegetation corridors provide shade, shelter and windbreaks and vegetation holds moisture in the soil as well, which is really important. But corridors of native veg also provide important habitat for native pollinators and native pest controllers as well. And fortunately, habitat corridors still exist along watercourses and unproductive or inaccessible parts of private properties that link to neighbouring properties. Yeah, native vegetation corridors are pretty important. And just purely because it exists and it's it's beautiful and it's something that we can enjoy and it adds beauty to our properties and we can go bushwalking, we can enjoy leisure and peace and quiet out in the bush and somewhere for our kids to run and play and just immerse themselves in nature. Wow. So these corridors play a really important role in our environment, not just for wildlife and plants, but as you mentioned, for people too. And I guess that experience of nature, that's what got you into this work, isn't it? 
I got into this role because I have a passion for the environment. I grew up on a small lifestyle acreage in Karajong and spent all of my childhood down the back of the property with my three sisters playing in the bush, you know, sitting on the big flat rock sandstone escarpment, making billy tea, <laughs> interpreting the scribbles in the scribbly gum, studying the rock grinding grooves next to the waterholes and swimming with platypus down in Roberts Creek. So <laughs> You did not swim with platypus. Are you serious? <laughs> we did, yeah. That's so, amazing. Wow. Just, you know, just a small lifestyle block, but it, you know, it felt as big as the world to our small selves. So, so as I grew up, I decided that's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to look after bushland, basically. And after studying environmental science at uni, I eventually landed a role at the Catchment Management Authorities, which is now local land services. And that's exactly what I've been doing for the last 15 years, working with landholders to protect and enhance their little patches of bushland. So yeah, living the dream. So I know you're working with landholders in a project that's creating habitat for koalas. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So about five years ago in 2018, landholders in and around Karajong started to report more and more koala sightings on their properties. At that time, there was a bit of research by Science for Wildlife as well that revealed that the Hawkesbury Blue Mountains koala population was one of the most genetically diverse populations in Australia probably because of the vicinity to the World Heritage Area and the diversity of food and habitat for them. So Angie introduced me to Gary Watterson, a landholder who was key in starting the Little Weenie Creek Koala Corridor, and apparently he rallied all of his neighbours to jump on board and get involved. We live in an area called Currajong in New South Wales, so we've got the most wooded area. The other properties to the south of us haven't got as much natural vegetation. So that's where we decided if we plant the trees that the koalas like, it gives them a larger area to inhabit around here. So that's how we got the koala project going. Then when we noticed so many koalas, a lot of the people said, oh, I'd love to have them at our place. And I said, the only way you're going to get them at your place is to have the right trees. That's how the project started. I kept thinking I'm doing all this work on my own property, but all the neighbouring properties contributed to whatever happens here, vice versa. So we had a Christmas street party, which encapsulates most of the catchment area here. And at the Christmas party, I said, I want to take 10 minutes of your time and explain what I've been doing on our property and what you can do so nature looks after itself as opposed to having to use all the pesticides and different things and we had a day here where it was more of a morning tea and introduction tell them about what we're doing a bit of a walk through the property I showed them some pictures of before and after and from there they all got on board so I thought we'll expand it out of our street some neighbours in the valley and we went up the valley and We've planted trees all through the valley so we can link up with our property into their properties and it gives a habitat for the koalas. So as Gary said, the project has expanded from the original group, becoming quite a big movement. Landholders from all across Kurajong are providing a safe passage for koalas and other wildlife to move across the landscape. It's been such a successful project, and we'll get into details of that later, but it hasn't all been smooth sailing. Angie shares some of the challenges they faced. 
Over the last five years, we've had the Black Summer bushfires, we've had the COVID pandemic, we've had flood times three or four, and yeah, it was quite interrupted. Yeah, that sounds really tough. Did you see any positives come out of the challenges or I guess like any silver linings, I suppose? One year into the project, the Black Summer bushfires of 2019-20 devastated the local koala habitat and wiped out about 80% of the World Heritage Area. So koalas that survived and were living in the unburnt asset protection zones around people's homes, this habitat became even more important as refuge areas and those koalas that were left will help to recolonise the protected areas in the World Heritage Area. And the work that the landholders are doing in Currajong to connect these corridors of vegetation across their properties is now fundamental to the survival of the local koala population. And research by Science for Wildlife has found that the most highly suitable koala habitat post-fire is on private properties surrounding the World Heritage Area. Wow, that's amazing. So it, it was, in a sense, good timing that these landholders had worked together previously to create this refuge for the koalas during and after the fires. So how did the koala population respond? It was discovered that the population was actually growing, which was fantastic. But they were threatened at the time by plans for a new road corridor through the World Heritage Area and some of the best koala habitat and through private properties. So some landholders banded together to protect their patches. We got a letter to say our land was going to be resumed for a super highway right through our house, our home, uh, we built it ourselves. And it's a very unique house in a very unique little valley. We've got about 120 different species of plants. We have all sorts of wildlife and wallabies, koalas, platypus, echidnas, your general oh. stuff. Fortunately, Gary's neighbours banded together, starting with a group of four and ending up with over 1,400 people wanting to be involved. So to make a long story short, they put a lot of work into providing research that proved it was crucial not to destroy this critical habitat. In the end, the plans for the road were scrapped. It just goes to show what a group of people working together can achieve. I'll be 100% honest. When everyone works together, it's easy. And the Karajong Koala Corridor project was formed. So the original project focused on properties within the Little Weenie Creek catchment. There was about 13 landholders got together with some incentive grant funding from Greater Sydney Local Land Services and the help of the local land care coordinator. And they set about linking patches of remnant koala habitat across their properties. So did things like revegetation through planting local native plants, bush regeneration, controlling weeds and just enhancing the existing vegetation and trying to link up those corridors. So despite the challenges, the project has been a huge success. Could you share some of the outcomes of the project with us? Over the five-year life of the project, landholders of 20 private properties have become involved, protecting and enhancing about 40 hectares of koala habitat, planting over 3,000 local native plants to create and connect habitat. And landholders have come along to six capacity building events and 15 working bees, which have been organised for landholders to help each other on their properties with planting and bush regeneration. 
The project has been a great example of what can be achieved when a group of landholders come together working across boundaries to achieve a greater outcome for the environment. And working with the local land care network has enabled us to draw on additional capacity building support and resources at that local level. And like the assurance that the group and the project outcomes will continue to be supported into the future. And also the project has attracted much recognition and support from all levels of government. And landholders proudly display their koala habitat gate signs and continue to be strong advocates for the local koala population and the endangered vegetation communities they've been restoring across their properties. So it's not just about the koalas, is it? It's a much broader vision. Koala is a flagship species in that it's cute and cuddly and iconic and recognisable, but in protecting their habitat, we're also protecting habitat for other native species, both flora and fauna. It's been such a great project and it's been driven by those landholders and, you know, they have really become the champions for koalas in Kurrajong. So hats off to them. They're the drivers. It's been a joint effort and that's the lovely thing too. Like these landholders, they know that it's not an immediate benefit that they're going to see, but it's something for future generations. The biggest lesson I learned I try to do everything overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow process. And once you start it and you get going, then you look back at what you've done and then you can really see it. That's a great piece of advice. Just being patient. In this fast-paced world we live in, oftentimes it's hard to be patient. But I suppose that's part of nature. Things take time and things work at their own pace. So in the spirit of looking at time, Angie, what is your vision for the future? What would you like to see happen in this space moving forward? Yeah, I'd like to see the project continue to expand with more landholders joining the movement to connect and enhance habitat across their properties. There are many opportunities for assistance through Landcare and the local land services and also other avenues such as registering to become a land for wildlife property or exploring conservation agreements, for example. And how can people get involved? People can, can get in contact with local land services or their local land care coordinator. There are opportunities for advice and assistance, but also there is opportunities for grant funding and to be involved in the Koala Corridor project. But not just this project, there are other opportunities for landholders for incentive grant funding. They could start a similar project with all of their neighbours. I mean, Every little bit counts. You might think your property is too small, but it might connect up to the reserve next door or you can connect up to the landholders downstream. And even just a native garden is important habitat for native pollinators. And yeah, everything counts. So now we're going to hear from another group supporting landholders to improve habitat connectivity on the Central Coast with Paul Madden. He is the project officer with the Community Environment Network, or CEN. I am, as a project officer, responsible for overseeing our Green Teams project, which is a land care project that is an offshoot of our Cause Connections project. It is primarily involved with supporting our land care groups on private properties. We have quite a number of them. Five at the moment, we're currently hoping to start up a sixth. 
So for our listeners out there, COS is an acronym for Coastal Open Space System. Paul, could you share with our listeners what the COS Connections project is? The Coastal Open Space System? That was actually formed in the 80s by then Gosford Council. A study had identified that uh, with a lot of the development going on in the Gosford area, they were at risk of losing the rural character of the area. And so the council identified and established a series of reserves and corridors along the ridge lines of the Gosford area. It's why most of Gosford, if you look up, you can see forested area. And that also serves as a key corridor. Mostly it contains public and council land, but national parks also include in it. And there are a number of private properties that have been identified to be added to it. Right. So I actually spent some time in Springfield last year, a suburb of Gosford, and I was marveling at how lovely it was to have the bushland right there at our doorstep with all of the wonderful bush paths, etc., and how I know why. So what is the overall aim or goal of the COS project? The aim of the COS Connections project is to maintain and improve ecological integrity of the lands identified as COS and wildlife corridors that complement the COS lands, assist landholders in or near the COS to maintain and improve bushland on their properties, and to ensure long-term protection of the COS corridors. As part of our COS Connections program, we've been working with a lot of private properties, 40 at the moment, and up to about year six, I think we have rehabilitated about 63 hectares. We are currently in the monitoring phase of that project now. And through that, all that, we have been conducting bush regen works, vegetation monitoring, just so we can see the improvements. We've also been doing wildlife monitoring through wildlife cameras. The identified flagship vulnerable species for the project were actually the long-nosed potteroo, yellow-bellied glider, and eastern pygmy possum, which are all listed as vulnerable. We spoke with Angie earlier about the importance of habitat connectivity. One important aspect of these wildlife corridors is that they can also help with diversifying the gene pools of animals, as Paul explains. The corridors are really important. It allows species to travel through and meet different populations. It's actually really good for biodiversity and building resilience in an ecosystem. It allows animal species to build gene pools as well and vary gene pools. So when you start introducing new factors, either environmental in terms of climate or new predators, they don't have that sort of ability to adapt, slowly inbreeding themselves until they may not be able to adapt to any new changes. Scientists are actually looking at the moment at the isolated populations of things like potteroos or bandicoots and seeing how they're changing and adapting separate from each other and whether or not they are actually forming subspecies. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I work up at the North Head Sanctuary in Manly, and we have an endangered population of long-nosed bandicoots. And they are endangered because they are isolated from the rest of the population. What has the Community Environment Network been doing to help people understand the issues better? We've been doing uh, awareness raising workshops, training workshops, a number of education workshops. These include stuff like guided walks in coslands, bush regeneration and weed management principles, sea collection, nocturnal walks, cultural talks, bird ID, fungi, and a wide array of similar things. It's great to hear that there are so many ways for people to get involved in that area on the central coast. We're now going to get a bit broader and look at the Great Eastern Rangers organisation. This group focuses on connectivity conservation, 
which they promote as a community-led approach. They work with landholders, communities, organisations and governments to help bring back natural wildlife corridors and reverse some of the negative impacts of habitat fragmentation. Katie, you chatted with the CEO of the Great Eastern Rangers organisation. Tell us a little bit more. Yes, so I spoke with Gary Howling. Gary has a lot of background working in this space. He actually did one of the first empirical studies on connectivity and its impacts and benefits for bird populations down in New Zealand. And he's been a leader in providing specialist connectivity conservation advice. Basically, he's a bit of a guru in habitat connectivity. So he's got a wealth of experience in this area with a passion to match it. We're a small not-for-profit organization with a big vision to connect habitats from Tasmania through to far north Queensland. Great Eastern Ranges was initiated back in 2007, originally as a New South Wales government-funded project. It was a response to a recognition that a lot of the conservation challenges that we face today really transcend the traditional scale of conservation. For decades, we've relied very heavily upon protected areas, upon managed parcels of land to protect nature. But towards the end of the last century, and certainly around the year 2000, there was a lot of science that was telling us that ecology in our wildlife really relies on movement across large distances. Australia is, by its very nature, a climatically boom-bust environment. So you have long periods of drought followed by long periods of heavy rainfall and wet. And wildlife responds to that kind of a cycle over time. So wildlife also then moves. So what we see in reality is a natural ecology whereby species often will contract to particular locations to refugia during those dry periods and often indeed in following periods of significant fire or floods or whatever. And then in those post-event periods, they need to be able to move back out across the wider landscape repopulate their wider environment and so Great Eastern Ranges is very much about supporting that type of natural ongoing seasonal movement as well. In terms of land management, the traditional custodians have been looking after the land and focusing on holistic and sustainable management for thousands of years. Traditional owners have been part of the bedrock of Great Eastern Ranges since the very outset. We have involved them at the grassroots level through that regional partnership model. We have a number of our regional partnerships. I'll point to, for example, the Jalikia Biodiversity Alliance, who their very name is a Gumbangia word for tree. So they've adopted, embraced, and are fully immersed in supporting and working with traditional owners. First Nations people own some of the most important building blocks for connectivity within the landscape. So they own properties. There are local Aboriginal land council owned properties, for example, or other Aboriginal corporation owned properties, but also properties owned by Aboriginal landholders that are actively involved as what we call anchor properties in the landscape. These are properties that have significant biodiversity or cultural values and form 
the basis upon which you actually start to build connectivity with the broader landscape. They are expressly managed for their cultural values as well as for the biodiversity values, the two of which often are quite intertwined. We see those relationships as being absolutely critical to the regional partnership model. I suppose it's all about working together with all of the different groups and stakeholders. And the traditional custodians can contribute so much knowledge and experience. Can you give us an example or a case study of what these projects can achieve when everyone works together? The Canangraboid to Wyangla link in central west New South Wales is an 80 kilometre long corridor that runs down the Abercrombie River catchment. The landscape has a series of national parks that run along the length of that corridor. And we've been working for the last 11 years with land care groups to fill in the gaps and create physical connections along that river corridor. We've now gotten multiple properties. I'm talking in the dozens of properties that have been involved in actually physically connecting up the work that they're doing on their property with the landholder next door and creating these physical connections that actually are connecting the protected areas down through that landscape corridor. That's wonderful that so many people are involved. What can they do to make this project work? The way that we achieve connectivity really relies ultimately upon what individuals are doing in their own gardens, in their own back paddocks, in their own environment, their own communities. By linking efforts up across those individual efforts, you achieve a much bigger outcome. And by working in very strategically located places, you can actually get a much bigger impact than trying to achieve something over a much larger area directly. So being very focused, being very precise in where you work, but also being highly collaborative with landholders working with the landholder next door or with the public authority that's managing the property next door is critically important to how you actually achieve connectivity at a large scale. Those individual actions aggregate up across the broader regional scale and achieve a much bigger outcome. Yes, absolutely. And I think with so many things in life, it's all about working together, right? And it's that interconnectedness that we really need to focus on. People are at the heart of the problems and the challenges that we face today, which means that people are also at the heart of the solutions. And we believe very much that if we support and enable people in doing the positive things that they want to do, in helping to emphasize and consolidate the positive things that they're already doing, we can help to achieve a bigger outcome. What we want to do is help people to make a connection with that bigger picture outcome so that they understand themselves, what they're contributing, and can be celebrated and encouraged in what they're doing. There is so much energy and positive spirit out there in the community and Greddystone Ranges exists to support that enthusiasm and that energy. So you are obviously quite passionate about what you do and encouraging others to join you on this journey, which is fantastic. 
I'm just curious, how did you originally get into the conservation space? My sense of connection with conservation came about as a young child. My family were always taking us on a weekend, say a Sunday afternoon. We'd go for a walk in the woods in Northern England. And I came to appreciate those small parcels of nature that even though they might seem like they're secluded and isolated, they still give you a sense of what was there before. And you could still interact with nature in those places. It gave me a passion for what I would call tiny nature. So the little things, the little fungi, the little mushrooms and ladybirds were a fascination for me. One of my earliest memories of nature was walking through the woods one Sunday afternoon and there was this tree stump and it was absolutely covered in ladybirds. I'd never saw anything before or since. It was just a, a mass of ladybirds. It was, there was just all over the thing. And that's what really got me interested in nature originally and that sense of being out and about. So I developed a passion for small places, for remnants. And then when I moved to Australia, I started to learn and understand about the importance of the connections between these small places, which got me interested in connectivity. That's a really lovely story. I've noticed that many people that work in this space have had some sort of connection with nature as a child. But that said, I guess it's never too late. Being involved in the Great Eastern Ranges initiative would be a fantastic opportunity for people to get closer to nature. If they wanted to get involved, what would that entail? There are a lot of ways that people could get involved in the Great Eastern Ranges initiative. Simply doing things in your own back garden can in some way contribute. The way that Great Eastern Ranges operates is through what we call regional partnerships. Regional partnerships provide a forum to bring people together, whether it be local land care groups, councils, national park property managers and others. It brings them together around a common interest, a common goal to achieve connectivity in their local area. So the most tangible thing that people can do if you're a landholder, setting aside land for conservation but also talking to your neighbor about what they're doing and thinking about how you can connect up with them. And then also working through land care groups, getting involved in a district-based or a locally place-based initiative that is achieving outcomes that is expressly beyond the bounds of your own property. People who don't own rural properties can get involved. They can volunteer their time through citizen science projects. So there are opportunities for landholders and non-landholders alike, a little bit for everyone. What is your vision moving forward? More people connecting with nature and doing whatever they can to support the work. Not just organizations like Red Eastern Ranges, but others are doing. And also encouraging governments to be making decisions and start doing the things that we know are beneficial for nature. I would just encourage people, learn a bit more. Just explore the world that we live within. We have been blessed with so many natural resources. Just go and explore it and enjoy it. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I know every time I have the opportunity to spend some time in nature, I 
just get that little buzz of energy. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing. So in addition to the positive impacts that we get from spending time in nature, one of the other greatest outcomes of these projects is the connectivity of the people involved. It really provides the opportunity for people to be a part of something and contribute to an undertaking bigger than what they could do by themselves. And the connections and friendships they make along the way is invaluable. Neighbours have started speaking to each other. They've connected with each other over a shared passion or new learnings. Some of these landholders now get together Christmas every year and have a street party and a you know, bit of a yarn about koalas or do some weeding on each other's places. We've actually made a lot of friends. Like you have neighbours, but then you have friends. The camaraderie, the friendship, so quite a few of them. Neighbours have very, become very close friends and in the little valley they've become very close, not just with what we do with the land care, but a couple of us have got common interests in a few other things too. Paul noticed that in addition to the feel-good vibes, many hands actually make for light work too. The amount of work that you can get done with more people up to a certain point scales exponentially rather than linearly. You don't get four or five people together and do four or five times the work of one person, you do six or seven or eight, which is always really good. In addition to sharing the workload, Gary points out the benefits for us in a really broad and holistic sense. There are tangible benefits that people get from being involved in nature and in nature conservation. There's been a huge amount of research that demonstrates the strong relationship between involvement in nature-based activities, whether it's simply bird watching, recreating in nature, or being involved actively in things like land care or bush care, getting out and actually physically doing things on the land. There's a strong re demonstrated relationship between that and mental well-being. It's been so inspirational to speak to all of these individuals about the amazing projects that they're working on. There's so many positive stories and incredible opportunities for people to get involved and really make a difference by working together. The Big Shift podcast is proudly produced by Grow Love Project in partnership with Greater Sydney Local Land Services. Thanks to all our guests who've generously shared their time and their stories. To find out more about the opportunities they've talked about, we've provided some links in the show notes. And remember, if you like what you heard, please share it. Thanks for listening.